Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When celebrities, dignitaries, and executives go out and about and travel around the world, they're often surrounded by bodyguards whose job is to protect them and their loved ones. My guest today offers a look at what's involved in offering these professional protective services for VIPs and how average citizens can apply the same principles to protect themselves and their families. His name is Todd Fox. He has an extensive military and law enforcement background, and he's the founder of Close Protection Corps and the author of Protection for and From Humanity. Todd and I discuss why the soft skills around mindset constitute the foundation of personal protection and the prep work that's necessary to keep both VIPs and normal folks safe, including the process of advancing, it's called advancing, we're talking about what that is, and a system from the Vietnam era you can use to make yourself a hard target. We then discuss what you can learn from the Marine Combat Hunter Program, the Cooper Color Code, and the OODA Loop to develop better situational awareness, and we enter a conversation with the hard skills you should learn to protect yourself and the order you should learn them in. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is protection. All right, Todd Fox, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you uh, got a book out called Protection for and from Humanity. You are the founder and director of a personal protection services. I think it's a layman's term. People would say you're a bodyguard. But tell us a bit about what you do, your background, how you got involved in what you do. Okay, so that that's all correct. And, and I think the common reference point would be bodyguard. But I own a company that's called Close Protection Corps. And I started out in the Marine Corps straight out of high school and went into professional fighting, which now is known as MMA. Back then it was called No Holds Barred or Valley Tudo if you're Brazilian or Japanese. And then eventually transitioned into law enforcement and worked on a SRT team, which is special response team. And I started the protective services company in 99. And it was based out of LA, predominantly executives and entertainer types who were going down to Mexico on on vacations or for business. I'm a Spanish speaker. So that was kind of a, a very easy transition for me to make. And then Eventually, it, it shifted toward entertainment type. So we're we're probably eighty percent entertainment focus, which is film and music, and then the rest are dignitaries, executives, and, and miscellaneous. So our start was in the Latin market. So starting in Mexico and then kind of moving into Colombia and Brazil and and throughout the region. Now we're we're shifting a little bit more toward uh, training civilians after twenty ish years of training military law enforcement and and focused on operations. Gotcha. So, and besides the the celebrities, I mean, what kind of dignitaries are you talking about? Like political leaders, things like diplomats? Yeah. So a lot of times we'll get national or international diplomats. So the, the State Department typically does the protection for U.S. diplomats, but sometimes they'll have other people that are connected or related to them or dealing with something and they'll hire us for it. Or it may be a foreign diplomat that's looking to get an outside source in because maybe they don't trust their own host nation or they don't have the degree of confidence that they want. And so we'll be brought in to supplement and or set up complete security for for that kind of diplomat. Gotcha. So this book is, you're basically taking some of the big picture insights from what you do, protecting dignitaries and uh, celebrities and things like that, and showing civilians, private citizens, how they can use those same ideas to protect themselves and their loved ones. But you start off the book, I thought it was interesting, you make this distinction, and you think, I think it's an important one, that's, you started the book off with this, the distinction between security and protection. Why is it important to make that distinction when you're talking about the work you do? And um, yeah, what is the difference? 
it, it's a nuanced difference. You know, security, when you look at definitions, which usually when you educate someone, you're trying to look at what, what the baseline definition is. It often refers to security as a state of being free from danger and the reality of life that just doesn't exist almost nowhere. If you're out and you're free and you're active and you're doing things, you're not free from danger. There, there's always danger and it comes in many formats. So protection, conversely, for us is more of a mindset. And in terms of definition, it's you know, to protect, to shield, to defend someone from, from harm or danger. And that better aligns with our operational missions. And it also aligns with our training objectives. So, you know, the focus for our clients or students is more in alignment with protecting them or defending them or shielding them from, from something that could harm them. All right. So your, your job, you, you can't eliminate all risk. It's impossible, but your job is to protect clients from as much risk as possible that's there, even though you can't eliminate those risks. Correct. Gotcha. Well, and I think I think oftentimes when people hear, you know, protection services, bodyguards, the first thing they think about are sort of those hard skills, like the Jason Bourne stuff, like how to use a firearm, combatives, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, how to drive tactically or whatever. But most of this book is that mindset stuff you're talking about. It's very, it's very soft. It's about mental models and how to make decisions. Why do you, and you started even starting out the book talking about you have to have the right mindset when you're thinking about protection. Why is it, why do you have to start there with mindset and what kind of mindset do you need to have when you're thinking about self-defense? Well, first, let me address the fact that everybody fixates on the hard skills, right? The shooting, fighting, driving, that's normal. And that's what people think about when they think about what we do. The problem is that you know, everything starts with your brain, which is why I'm focused on mindset. No matter what you do, it has to have some pathway in your brain. You have to understand something and you have to have some frame of reference for what could solve the problem. So that's really where we're at. Also, I'm not a very big guy. Um, 510 and 185 pounds. So relative to protection, you know, everybody's expecting this big, huge guy. And so my primary tool as with anybody working in this this business is your brain, how you utilize your brain, how quick you can see something, how you can correlate it to a possible solution, how you quickly you can implement that based on how your brain works. So that's where the mindset is. It's it's more critical than any piece of hardware. You know, a gun like I talk to people about a lot, is an inanimate object. You, you have to do all of these things with a gun. You have to have a magazine. You have to load rounds into it. You have to insert it into the mag while you have to, to cycle the slide and, and get the round in the chamber. You have to align your sights. You have to press the trigger when, when your sights are aligned. There are so many things that have to go on first, but all that stuff is done by your brain. And so, you know, the, the gun alone is, is nothing. The car alone is nothing. You think of your brain kind of as, as an operating system, right? And that's what we want. We want this operating system functioning at a high level. And we want to condition the operating system first. And then the hard skills are basically the tools that are provided. So for us, that comes second. The first is, is the brain and the mindset and utilizing it because you don't always have the actual tools that you may need in a situation. So a lot of impromptu stuff occurs in protection when you're in a foreign country and you're dealing with high stress situations. So you know, we we typically use our brain first and we try not to go where there are problems. So if I know, you know, hey, we shouldn't go to Iraq because there are a lot of problems in Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria or you name it. So I try not to go there. And then when I have a client that needs to go there, we try not to go to the hot spots within that particular region. And then when we do have to go there and we start seeing these indicators or anomalies from the baseline that occur in that environment, we try to 
to get out of that environment. And then the last, the very, very, very last thing we do is utilize our hard skills, our shooting, fighting, driving to defend ourselves when we can't leave, when we can't evacuate, when we can't escape something. So the whole point for us is use the hard skills to create the opening to get out. But the better option obviously is, is to be smart and, and don't allow yourself to get into the situation that forces the hard skills. Yeah, that's you spend a lot of time in the book talking about what protective services do. They Their whole job is to avoid the risk at all. And so you have this section, you know, response options. And the first one that you just said that the best option is don't be where danger commonly occurs. And then the good option is leave at the first sight of a problem. And then the, you said the last bad option is stay and fight. And I think oftentimes when people think, oh, self-defense, like I got to learn to stay and fight. It's like, no, most self-defense is learning how to do number one and number two, like don't be where danger is and then leave. So you don't even have to fight at all. Yeah, I, I, you know, you think about that, and and uh, you know, I've had a storied history, you know, between the military and law enforcement, even as as a kid, and you know, I've, I've done martial arts my whole life, and I don't mean esoteric martial arts, I mean fighting, combative martial arts, boxing, wrestling, jujitsu, muay thai, and you know, as a young kid with a lot of testosterone, I was involved in a lot of fights, and you know, I wasn't smart enough in the moment to realize that no, I'm not starting a fight, but I keep getting in fights. Why is that happening? Well, I went to the places where fights are going to occur. You know, if you go to a location that has fights frequently, the chances of you getting a fight are much higher than normal. If you go to a place where fights almost never happen, you don't end up in a fight. And so that's the biggest part. And it, and it sometimes it takes a little effort. A lot of people will say like, oh, that's common sense. Yeah, it's common sense, but no one thinks that way and no one applies it that way. So, you know, it's a huge part of our job is just to understand where we're going, what risk exists there. And, and generally we do that through historical analysis, right? So you say, you know, where you're at, there's there's Bob's Bar and then Bob's Bar, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there's fights from, you know, uh, let's say nine o'clock at night until two in the morning when they close. Well, that's probably the ideal time not to be there if you don't want to be in a fight. And so something simple like that, you know what, we're going to go on Thursday and we're going to go at, at six o'clock after work instead of going at, at 10 or 11 or 12 on a weekend. Little simple selections and decisions like that help us to, you know, survive and also thrive in those conditions. Well, and another thing you talk about that you and your, what your protective services do to avoid where danger is at commonly occurs is this thing called advancing. What's advancing and how does that help you avoid uh, conflict or problems? Yeah, advancing is a critical and fundamental and, and core part of protection, right? Any type of protection, whether you're talking about executive protection, dignitary protection, celebrity protection, overseas high-risk security, uh, doesn't matter. Advancing is essentially the the choreography of what you're going to be doing. So it's admin and logistics. So advancing would be me going ahead to look at an airport, to look at a hotel, to look at a restaurant or a venue, to look at the routes going to and from, and to create plans based on the information that I'm gleaning from a particular situation. So you can do it in writing, you can do it through physical walkthroughs. Modern day, pretty much for most of what we do is we create a document that tells somebody what we want, whether it's you know a director of an airport or the general manager of a hotel or the owner of a restaurant. And we'll send it out to them and say, hey, here are the things we'd like for our visit with you know, XYZ person, you know, can we get on the phone and talk about this? And they say, yeah. And so you get on the phone and you start talking to them about what your needs and wants are. And you start asking about 
you know, how is this situated? How is it laid out? How do you operate? Where are ins and outs? And then they say, okay, well, we're going to send you a floor plan. And, you know, these are the options that you have for dining locations. And these are the servers that you could potentially have. And you, you kind of walk through all of what could happen. And so, hey, if, if that doesn't work out, if we have an issue in this area, where are we going to, right? You figure out where your, your safe havens are, your temp holds are. And all of that's done before you get there because it's much more difficult to figure out a solution under stress while things are going upside down. So you do the advance work basically to create plans and options. If I know where all the doors are, if I know where all the emergency medical equipment is or fire equipment is, if I know who the key players are, and that's another big component of advancing. If I'm meeting the owner of a place, if I'm meeting the general manager of a place, if I'm meeting the director of a place, those guys can override their existing system. So maybe a entry level person like a, a front desk manager can't do something, but the owner of the hotel or the general manager of the hotel can override what their policy is saying, no, 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 in this case, we're actually going to violate our policy and we're going to do what that client wants. And so meeting with those people and knowing, knowing who has the power, the authority and knowing the physical setup it's critical. And we typically do that during the daytime. We do it at nighttime. We do it on holidays. We want to see what it's like in different environments and different conditions if we can do it. And on a, a bigger team and a larger scale, you have a dedicated advanced guy who goes ahead and does that. So if that gives you any, any kind of idea of what the, the general objective is for an advance. Yeah. So it sounds pretty thorough. And like you guys create like contingency plans based off of this thing, but like, how would like say a civilian, right? They're planning a trip somewhere. Like how could they some, use some of the principles of advancing for their own protection? Sure. And, and a lot of people ask this, you know, I get this for the last 20 plus years. Hey, what, I'm going here. I'm doing this. What should I do? How should I think about it? And my answer is that you, you start with collection of historical data, right? So I start to look at, you know, what, what is the murder rate like in this place? And, and what is the economy like in this place? And what are the cultural norms? And what type of currency do they use? And what language do they speak? And I start gathering the general data. And then once I have that, I might start getting into very specific data. And let's just say you're taking your family on vacation and you're going to Cancun, you're going to Mexico. Well, Cancun's a tourist spot, so it's not like kind of mainland Mexico. So you you wouldn't assess it the same way you would assess something like Sinaloa, the state of Sinaloa. But what is happening there and and who is there and what's law enforcement like there and what are the common scams there? And then I would find sources parallel structures to, to what I'm operating under, like in this case, the government. So I'd go to the US government and I'd use something like the State Department's entity called OSAC, Overseas Security Advisory Council. And I start looking at something they have called crime and safety reports. So now all of a sudden I have the crime and safety report and I'm starting to get data from that. And I'm figuring stuff out. And then I go back to where I'm going. Okay, which airport am I coming into? How far away is it? So what's the drive time like? What's the traffic like? And then I start to look at, okay, well, are people targeted in cars like carjackings or do they do express kidnappings there? And what kind of countermeasures can I create? Because I know this going in. And then my hotel, I start to look online and see what past incidents tourists have had there at that hotel in Cancun. And then I start to reach out to those people. Hey, who's this person? And can I contact them? And they, are they open to giving me their personal information? Information. Can I get the, the GM cell phone number? And you start to create these things from a distance. And then when you get there, you spend a little bit of time. Let's say you have a, a family of four or five people and, and you are a more traditional family and you're the male role model and the family is the father or whatever you are. You would say, hey guys, come in and, and unpack and stay in the room. I'm going to walk the hotel for five or 10 minutes. That's advancing. That's what you're doing. You're learning it 
in preparing yourself for a bad situation. And a lot of guys will say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not paranoid. And I said, well, I'm, neither am I. I'm just prepared. And because I'm prepared, I'm more relaxed and I can enjoy myself because I have a ton of options because I, I know this property inside and out. Okay. So another thing you need, you talk about in the book in order to avoid problems is also understanding how the criminal mind works and how they pick targets because that can help you avoid being a target. So what, what is like generally, what is someone who wants to do bad things to you? What are they looking for in a target? And then what can you do to be less of a target? Okay. So generally speaking, a criminal needs something of value, right? And most people think about this in terms of, of money, a wallet, a purse. Some people think of it in terms of an asset, something that, that they have that can fetch value through fencing it. You know, Some people think of like a carjacking in terms of the actual car. Those are, are, are pretty common ones. So they need something of value. So if you have something of value, you're a potential target. If you look like a weaker per- person, you're a potential target. If you have a relationship to an entity, let's say information-based, you know something, like you work on the stock market, you have some type of insider trading information and they, they want that. You yourself as a person are of value to them. Or in a foreign country, a lot of times you as a human are of value, assuming someone's willing to pay for you to get you back. And so those are the typical things of value, like things that have cash value immediately, like things that can be taken to a pawn shop, things that produce information that's of value that will later result in money or the person themselves when you look at kidnapping. So those are the three common things. And then from that, normally doing things like advanced work essentially shows you where exposure points are, where choke points are, shows you kind of how the culture moves or flows. So the biggest part for us is not having something like, you know, your Rolex watch on, not having a bunch of jewelry on, not, you know, taking the cash out of your pocket or wallet when you're paying for something and you've got a handful of cash that everybody around can see. Things like moving in groups. So if you're moving three or four or five, you're a less desirable target because the chance of them being successful is pretty low. And even when you're overseas and you're by yourself, there are things that you can do to look bigger than you are. So if I start to kind of walk into a group of two or three or four people that are moving down the street, I blend into them. I'm not right in the group, but I'm a couple feet back and I look like I'm with them. And if I'm wearing local clothing, I look even more like I'm with them. And if I'm laughing when they're laughing, I look like I'm with them. So a a lot of little things that you can do, your posture, your demeanor, your eye contact, all of these things will make you a less likely target. And and in general, it's, it's back to mindset, right? Do you look like somebody easy to take money from, to take a life from, to take whatever it is? And if you have the right posture, the right demeanor, and you blend and they don't even see you, uh, chances of that happening are are pretty slim. You you said in the book, in protection, you call this target hardening, right? Make Make yourself a hard target. Correct. That's exactly what it is. So, you know, you figure out what the target is and then you reverse it and you figure out how to make it hard to get access to that target. And and we talk about that through a bunch of different systems that we use, threat and vulnerability assessments in particular. Well, let's talk about that. Like, let's go through that sort of methodology that you use to do uh, that threat assessment. Yeah. So we, we break it down into different categories. So we have a threat assessment, we have a risk assessment and we have a vulnerability assessment. They're different things. And I, I realize that that vernacular is, is common vernacular and 
for most people, you know, threat, risk, and vulnerability are the same, but for us, it's not. And, and even in the security or protection industry, people use that word, those words interchangeably, and they're not. So for us, the threat is the means and source, kind of like a gun or a knife or a bomb. A risk is a percentage of likelihood. So I'm looking at more at numbers, the chance of occurrence, occurrence, and then that occurrence being successful. And then vulnerability is essentially assessing the flaws or the chinks in the armor, the weaknesses in the existing security structure. So we go in and we do assessments on all of those things. And we talk about a couple different assessment processes that we use in the real world in the book. We talk about something really simple that anybody that went to business school would learn about, something like a SWOT analysis, where we're looking at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And that's kind of a what we would refer to as a down and dirty assessment system where you're just doing it on the fly. It's, it's not something you're sitting at a desk thinking through or brainstorming or in a working group. That's just a, hey, I'm here and I'm trying to break it down quickly and I'm going to do it in, in two minutes. And then we get into to much more complex systems. And one of the ones that we talk about in the book is the Carver methodology. And that is exactly target hardening. So Carver basically is a a Vietnam era system that was a targeting analysis system, right? So it was used to find targets that the US would want to target inside of Vietnam. And this system for us is not that because in protecting people, you're you're not targeting others. You flip it and you figure out what the adversary would target for you, and then you harden those particular points. So Carver's an acronym. It stands for criticality, which is the critical value of a person, place, or thing. Accessibility, how accessible, how easy is it to gain access to a person, a place, or a thing. Recoverability, which is if it's attacked, how quickly can it recover, whether it's a physical structure or person or or information or a database or anything like that. And then vulnerability, which we talked about briefly, which is a chink in the armor, a weakness. So they have all this this security structure in place, but where's the weakness? The weak person, the weak physical door or link or locking mechanism. And then E is effect, meaning the effect of the attack. Obviously, you know, the effect is pretty self-explanatory, meaning if we're targeting a person, the, the person's death would be a high value effect. You know, if, if I'm attacking that person physically and I break their pinky toe, it's going to have a pretty low value effect. And then in our system and also in the, the governmental side too, they assign a point value to each of these to get a number at the end to kind of see how good the target is or how, how bad the target is. And we want to make a bad target. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, the last one in Carver is recognizability. So Think about that in terms of an attack happens, how recognizable is it? And if you are a terrorist, you want it to be super high, right? So if if you think about 9-11, you think about the planes going into the towers, you know, that's seared into people's memory. So the terrorists get a five point. On a one to five, they get five points for that because that's seared in your memory. Now, if you think about other things like for us, think about the Secret Service or something like that. People penetrate all of the time these layers that the Secret Service have, but they never talk about it. And they don't talk about it because if other people hear that it's possible, they may try to do it. So they reduce the signature or the recognizability by not talking about it, by suppressing it, by doing a bunch of little things. So it's not common knowledge that people penetrated it or do on a regular basis. So that's Carver. That's one of the systems that we use, C-A-R-V-E-R criticality, accessibility, recoverability, vulnerability, effect, and recognizability. And so 
you know, if I figure out what's critical to me, like air and blood, I safeguard those things, right? So I put, say, body armor on or a helmet on. Accessibility. I want to reduce access for outsiders to my celebrity client. Recoverability. Well, if I want to recover, let's say I have trauma kits with tourniquets and quick clot and Israeli bandages, or I have a, a, an AED, some type of defibrillator. That helps me recover if I am attacked. Vulnerability, I start to look around and if I know maybe a person in my group has a certain type of dependency or, or habit that can get me in trouble, I know that that person is potentially my vulnerability. And then when there's an effect, I try to reduce that effect and then I try to reduce the ability of the public to see what occurred. So that that's kind of a it seems like a long-winded explanation, but I really, really cut that down to to something simple. Right. So this is all this is all going back. This is how you harden your target, basically. You go yeah, through this process. You figure out what they what they want and what they need and how they'd go about getting it. And then you basically shut down those methods and you make it very hard to do any of those things. And when you're doing this as a professional, like how long does this take? I mean, does it get really detailed and drawn out, or have you gotten to the point where you can do it on the fly? Yeah. So this <laughs> that's a great question. This is dependent upon who you're working with, how much they value security, what the risk level is. When you start to talk about politics and religion and fame, those things change drastically versus you going on vacation somewhere with a normal family. So if we have somebody that's saying really crazy things and, and we have clients that do that, you know, that's going to make this process much more arduous and much longer in terms of time. And then we're going to have to get the the budget financially to be able to do this. Now that's assuming we've been told they're going somewhere and doing something and we didn't get a short fuse mission where it's like, yeah, we're going here tomorrow. And there's zero chance of advancing that place. You know, oh, Jakarta tomorrow morning. Okay. That's, that's a little bit short. We're just going to have to adjust on the fly if we don't have people in country that are able to do it immediately. So we get all of that. Sometimes we get months to plan for events and activities and trips. And sometimes we get days. And in some cases, you know, you think about restaurants or events, you have a friend and he tells you about this great place. And then you turn to, to your protective security guy and you say, oh yeah, we're going here. And you have zero time. So now we're in a car and I'm trying to look on my phone at the layout of this restaurant through image searches and histories and, you know, or make a quick phone call to somebody that's in that region and see if they can jump ahead because I know it's 45 minutes away and they're five minutes away. So it, it changes drastically, but it goes from months, literally, to or, or even years when you look at the Olympics and then the Olympics got pushed back and you start to look at, at the planning for that. But up to and including like, hey, we're going in five minutes. So that's that's a pretty uh, broad span there. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, let's say like the regular person, could you do like a Carver methodology for like your home? Is that something you could, that would be useful? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's, what's critical in your house, right? Uh, I would say that, you know, you, your family members, whoever you have, maybe your pet, those are critical things in your house. If you look at the, the human or, or pet side of it, and then you'd figure out how to limit access to that through certain mechanism, physical mechanisms. You'd figure out what things, if you were attacked, could you do in your house to keep that up? And you look at the vulnerabilities, the weakness of your physical structure to come in. You look at the effects of, of somebody like doing some type of home invasion and you start to harden things based on that. You can do one that's purely physical and we do a system also, and I, I believe a small portion of this is in the book, that, that we use this system 
where you basically have the layered security approach. And if you're doing your house as a physical entity, like the first thing you'd want is power because without power, you're, you're in a pretty bad spot. You don't have lights. Maybe it's, you know, right now where I'm at last week, it was below zero. And you don't live too long in below zero conditions with, with no heat, no electricity, nothing like that. So you'd figure out how to safeguard your power and you'd figure out how to have redundancies like generators. You'd figure out, you know, okay, do I have firewood on hand and how, how long do I have uh, access to food for? And if I don't, do I know how to hunt? And you start to put these, these contingencies into place, but the layered security approach is probably more appropriate for your home if you're asking for a normal person, right? So how you do that is you deal with the outside in and you start by deterring people, right? So if you have good lighting around your house, the chance of a criminal getting caught is much higher. Being detected is much higher. So you have nice, good lighting. Let's say you have a fence. Let's say you have a dog. Those are all deterrents and people don't make the attempt because they say, okay, the house next door doesn't have those things. So that's your kind of starting point. And then you come in and the next mechanism that you have is a detection mechanism. Say like your alarm. Your alarm might not be a deterrent. No one knows you have it, but when they breach or, or break into your house, the alarm starts going off, right? That is a detection method. It tells you just like your fire alarms would, your sprinkler systems would, your carbon monoxide detectors would, a detection method. So the detection method, dog, if you watch cameras actively or you have them that alert, that's also a detection mechanism as well as your alarm. So you detect it. Now you want to delay it, right? So let's say you move your family members into a specific room. It doesn't have to be a safe room, but you move them into a spot in the house where it's hard to get to. So now this person has to go through one room or two rooms or three rooms or into the basement. And along the way, they have to break these doors down or do whatever. You're basically delaying that attack. And so you set up that kind of method in your house and, and you look at what things in your house can be used to do that to delay the attack. And then you look at what response methods you have, right? Do you have guns? Do you have knives? Do you have really good hand-to-hand -hand skills? Do you have, you know, the police on speed dial and, and you have a great relationship with them? And then the last phase for us is mitigation. And so as a homeowner, you'd start to look at, you know, what insurance policies do I have, right? And in the world that we deal with, we deal with lawyers and managers and agents and, and people like that that assist us in mitigating these circumstances. But for a homeowner, it would be, do I have a homeowner's insurance policy? Do I have a medical insurance policy? Do I have, let's say I'm on a, a family trip. Do I have a, a policy that gets me back to the US and, and gets me to a private clinic? Because maybe in Cancun, the hospitals aren't you know, uh, high-end hospitals that are trauma level one hospitals or, or they're just not sanitary and I have a better chance of dying going to the hospital than, than not. So I have these policies in place and that would be a, a mitigation feature. So I think that kind of speaks more to your private citizen home environment. No, that was really useful. And we've been talking about, this is like, we haven't even gotten to the point where like we're recognizing threats. Like we're just doing like the pre-planning phase. Like, Correct. And I think you make this point that the reason why you have to do all this groundwork is that when you are in a protect mode, you are at a, you're at a disadvantage, right? Because you're, you are responding. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like, right. So, so talk about that asymmetry and like what you like between a protector and attacker. Yeah. So the, 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 the unfortunate truth, and a lot of people won't say this, but the unfortunate truth is that the, the attacker typically has the advantage and, and we break down a lot of different systems and scenarios and processes. But when you look at the general attack cycle and you look at kind of the key factors, the attacker gets 75% and the victim or target gets 25%. So 
the first phase of that is is the attacker picks the location that they're going to attack you in. Then they pick the time that they're going to attack you. And then they pick the method of attack that they're going to use. So now they get the time, location, and method of attack. Well, all of that is acting, right? And then the target is getting to select their response to the attack, which is a reaction. So now you have action versus reaction. And most of us that have been around a little while realize uh, that action is way faster than reaction. And really the only way to offset that is through training. And through training, you have these exposures and and hopefully you recognize it before it happens. You start to see that that person's watching you or moving with you. Um, You start to mirror kind of your movements and positions and angles. And this kind of thing, early identification can help you thwart the attack. You never get to the point where they actually attack. So that's the first phase. And then the second is through training and, and, and they get to the attack phase and you have, let's say, martial arts skills or you have firearm skills or you have uh, edged weapon skills. Your chance of survival goes up through the roof. Also, when you look at this kind of stuff, training creates this ability to recognize certain patterns and then make you or keep you calm in that situation. It builds up a tolerance to things and it also creates pathways neurologically. So there's a guy named Klein that wrote a a great book on this and it's focused on recognition prime decision-making. So think about in your life, anything you've done where you've never done it before and it's, it's a pretty serious thing. And now you've got to go in and do this brand new thing under stress and maybe the potential loss is really high for you. You're going to be nervous. You're going to have, you know, an increased heart rate. You're going to have, you know, physiological response to stress elements like tunnel vision, loss of fine motor so all these things pulling the blood to the center chest. All these things will work against you, not for you in this particular case. So when you have recognition prime decision making, you basically your brain says, "Oh, I've seen something similar to this before and I think I know the solution to it." And you you're you're calmer and you go to your solution much quicker. So your response time, your reaction is better because you've trained it, you've planned it, right? Right. So you're busy, you're trying to close that asymmetry that exists as much as you can. You can't get rid of it completely, but you can No, it's it. it's 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 almost impossible. And especially if you're unaware of your environment, especially if it's a new environment, uh, especially if the, the criminal is really good at what they do and they're good at blending in and masking themselves and, and they ambush you. You never want to be on you know, that side of the ambush, you know, it's always better if you think of the military to be actually setting the ambush and, and, and deploying versus being the one dealing with an ambush. That's a horrible situation. And you're seeing it a lot right now in law enforcement and, and they're on the, the backside of it because they're, they're bound by the law and, you know, a person acts and then they only get a chance to respond to it. So it's, it's a, a tough situation to be in. So we've been talking about prep, things you can do before an event happens to reduce, you know, the amount, your reaction time. But let's talk about like when you're actually on the scene, right? So you're executing the plan during that time, I'm sure a bodyguard, protective service, what do you want to call it? They've got to maintain situational awareness so that they can know if they need to respond or do something. So talk about that. How, how do you guys train for situational awareness? What, what, what does that look like? Well, there's, there are a lot of different methods that we use and that we train, but probably the one that's easiest to talk about comes from the Marine Corps and they had a program called the Combat Hunter Program, which I think now has become pretty famous because some of the guys left it and started talking a lot about it. But we use a lot of similar methodology. So 
for us environmentally, having some type of environmental awareness is critical to, to doing our jobs and knowing when to stay, when to leave, when to go to hard skills. And we talk about that normally understanding the environment knowing what's normal in terms of baseline. So we try to establish these baselines. Like I know what's normal in, you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? right? So I know if I go to the BOK Center in Tulsa, for example, I know what behavior's like there. I know what people's accents like. I know when they come and go, how they behave, what the, the structures. I know all of these things ahead of time. So I know it's normal. The whole reason to know what normal is, is to be able to detect or identify an anomaly, something that's not normal. And when I can detect something it's not normal, I can focus attention on it and say, okay, is this anomaly critical? I mean, it can hurt me or is it benign? And, and the truth is that most anomalies from the baseline, they, they, they're benign. They're not going to hurt me. It's just that guy's weird or that guy's homeless or that guy, you know, he's on drugs or wh- whatever it may be. And then when you have that anomaly, anomalies kind of come in two general formats, which is anomaly above the baseline and anomaly below the baseline. So an anomaly above the baseline would be in addition to the environment, right? So you're you're somewhere and there's always three people there and now there's four or five. That's an anomaly above the baseline. You're somewhere and there's always three or four people there and now no one's there. That's an anomaly below the baseline. And this gets talked about in the Middle East a lot where you know a, a military team comes into a, a market, a bazaar, a souk, and you know, it's teeming with people, people are all over, all ages, a lot of activity, a lot of sales, doors and windows are open. And they come back the same time the next week, and there's 50% of the people there, almost no women and children, doors and windows are shut. You know, people are looking left and right actively. You know, that's an indicator. That's an anomaly that certain people are missing, certain things have changed. And then you would adjust your behavior based on that. And so from a situational awareness perspective, that awareness that there's an anomaly, and let's say we connect it to three things. That's the norm for us. Like, here's an anomaly. That's one anomaly. Now we have a second anomaly. Now we have a third anomaly identified. That pretty much tells us we need to change. So we have three options. And I think in the book, I, I refer to it as, as the three C's. But the first option is to continue as planned. Yes, I see those anomalies, but I don't think they're critical. I think they're benign and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So that's continuous planned. So I continue just doing my, my behavior, whatever, whether it's a route driving, whether it's a physical activity, moving something, walking through a bazaar, whatever it is. The second one is to change, change my behavior, change my route, change my plan. I don't continue as I normally would because we're trying to avoid something like an ambush or being targeted in some sort of way. So any minor change will throw off that enemy in a general sense. So instead of going down that main street, I'm going to go over two streets, down another street and back around and I'm going to enter from a different location than I normally would. And that's changing behavior. And then the last one is kind of the the most extreme one. I've recognized an anomaly and I've got two or three or four anomalies and I I think that they're critical. And I think it's something that my skill set, me as a team of one or two or five or whatever I have, can't meet that threat. I'm going to cancel the operation completely. I'm going to pack up. I'm going to leave. I'm going to cancel. Um, those are, are kind of components of situational awareness for us. They, the situational awareness alerts us to something and then it also drives our decision. Gotcha. And so I imagine this situational awareness ties back into what we were talking about earlier, like advancing. Like in order to know what the baselines are, you'd have to come to say Tulsa and experience what the BOK Center is like on a, a busy night with a concert or something like that. So you can establish the baseline and then you can know 
by knowing what the baselines are, you're able to know what the anomalies are. Correct. 100%. Okay. And then also you talk about you know, the idea of just being aware of your environment, like having that head on a swivel. And you talk about the uh, Cooper color code can be useful in developing that head on a swivel idea. Yeah. So Colonel Cooper is was a former Marine who developed a bunch of different systems that were really unique and special in his time. Some of the stuff today is 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 dated in terms of, of how we see it, but the reality is that his material is timeless. And so Colonel Cooper, when he got out of the Marine Corps, he went to Paulden, Arizona, and he started a, a, the first gunfighting school. And it's changed names several times, but it's, it's best known as Gunsight. And you know, he had a, a number of books that he wrote. Principles of Personal Defense is one of them. If you read that you know, from 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it's literally applicable today. It's, it's pretty amazing. He was well ahead of his time. So Colonel Cooper's color codes were not like the governmental color codes you see now about airport warnings and stuff like that. His color codes were more in alignment with kind of your emotional and mental, your awareness states. And he he started with white and white was and is basically unaware, unprepared. Like, you know, you're you're staring at your phone, you don't expect anything to happen, you're you're in like a state of bliss and you're disconnected from everything around you. And there's a large portion of society that operates that way today. Um, And when something happens to them, they're shocked. There's zero chance of them responding to it because they're going to be caught off guard. They're going to be surprised. And the common thing we hear in protection or law enforcement in the military is they came out of nowhere. Well, nothing happens out of nowhere. There were plenty of indicators. You just didn't see them because you were in a state of white. So generally speaking, the only acceptable times for being in a state of white would be something like sleeping, taking a nap, some, some form of intentionally disconnecting to restore your body. The next phase that he spoke to right, is, is yellow. And yellow is kind of a general state of awareness. And, and he talked about it in terms of just accepting that, hey, something bad could happen to me today. And I need to acknowledge that and be ready to address it if it does occur. And so part of that is just looking around like, Take your eyes off your phone and look in front of you, look to the left, look to the right, look up above you, and just kind of pay attention to what's going on around you. For people that have those skills already, like people that are great people watchers, they have a lot of information that a person that's heads buried in their phone will never have. And so they can make better choices, generally speaking. So yellow is a condition that he said you can stay in indefinitely. So your heart rate doesn't go through the roof. You're not panicked. It's just, hey, something can happen. I'm good to go. So if you are in um, the state of white and let's say you're 60 beats a minute, then in the state of yellow, you're also 60 beats a minute for your heart rate. Then he moved on to um, orange. And in orange, basically what he said is you've identified something right that is an anomaly, something that could harm you in your environment. And now you're making the decision that if that entity, if that thing presents or crosses a certain threshold, you're going to act, you're going to do something specific. And so we talk a little bit about that in the book too, in the terms of if-then thinking. If this guy reaches in his waistband and pulls out a metallic object that looks like a gun, then I'm going to take my gun out and shoot him. And that's an extreme example, but it can be anything. So if this happens, then I'm going to do that. And so this also gets back to recognition prime decision-making where you're training your brain so that you don't go into some type of panic mode. Like, okay, I had already established what this threshold is and now he's crossed the threshold. So that that's the orange, which your heart rate starts to go up at that point. And, and you know, you're starting to get 
that feeling of anxiety. And then it gets into the red. The red is when they've tripped that wire, when they've crossed that threshold. Now this guy reaches into his waistband and he pulls out that metallic object that's shaped like a gun. And he starts to point it at you. That's when you actually, in theory, execute whatever it is that you plan to execute. So we, we have the if moment, moment, and now you've got to do the then thing, whatever it was. And so you're in the fight in phase red. And so you typically have hormonal heart rate at that point. So your, your blood pressure and heart rate will skyrocket. And then on Colonel Cooper's system, the Marine Corps added to that something that didn't exist before, which is black. And black is essentially like you've gone into a tailspin, you've disconnected, you've frozen, and you're not in the fight or flight. You're, you're frozen. You can't act or don't act or don't have the capacity to process it mentally. So those are the phases that Colonel Cooper identified you know, 50 years ago, and, and they're still valid today. Yeah. So basically we want to stay in condition yellow. Correct. Like yeah. You time. want to be aware. It's yeah, just, simple. Aware. it doesn't yeah. take any energy. It doesn't take much effort to just look around. And if you have to look at your uh, phone, great. Look at your phone, but then look up from your phone. Don't fixate on it. So I'm just, I'm aware of what's in my environment. Oh yeah. There's somebody I've never seen before. There's a car I've never seen before in my neighborhood, or there's somebody doing something that's very abnormal and, and you know, whatever, or it's just kids joking around playing. I know those kids, I, they live two houses down. Okay. It's not that big a deal. So it's just being aware of what's happening around you. Well, the other thing you talk about in the in the moment situation is as a protective service agent, you have to make decisions on the fly in environments that are constantly changing. They're fluid, they're dynamic. And so there, you've also, you've got, I say, decision-making tools that you can fall back onto to make those decisions faster. Because the faster you can make a decision, the more likely you'll be successful in protecting your target. And like one decision model you use or talk about in the book is the OODA loop. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the OODA loop, like what is it and how do you use that in your in your work? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a it's a good one. It's it also ties into the if then thinking. It also ties into the recognition prime decision making and then these color codes. So uh, these are all crossover subjects, and that's kind of why I pull them together in one book. These are not things that I just created out of my brain. These are existing systems that I, I see as connected. And and you know my background: military, law enforcement, fighting, protection. All these things utilize all of these components, but. The OODA loop in particular was created by a guy named John Boyd, who was a colonel in the Air Force. And Colonel Boyd was a fighter pilot. And basically, he came up with this system to address the thinking and decision-making cycle as a fighter pilot. So who would win that dogfight? And what he came up with in a nutshell is that every time that he'd engage in these dogfights against other fighter pilots, he would observe, right? He would orient to it, whatever he observed, and he would decide what he's going to do, and then he would act. So O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, and act. And he had to do that. And it's a cycle that's ongoing. So every time the situation changes, if that plane's not where it was before, it changes course or movement or angle, now he's got to start that OODA loop again. And so whoever can cycle through it the fastest and act typically wins that fight. And so it's the same thing for us. You know, We want to observe something. We want to orient to it. We want to decide what we're going to do. We're going to be able to act. And if we can cycle through that faster than, say, the bad guy, we typically are going to win that fight because we're preparing for it mentally through mechanisms like the OODA loop. And that's kind of how we look at making decisions. So we try to shorten the OODA loop. The faster that you can cycle through the OODA loop, the more the OODA loop of your adversary is expanding. And so his chance of actually reacting and dealing with your change and your behavior 
it's think about it, it starts again for him. So now you're here and he's coming to attack you. You've observed it. You've, you've oriented yourself to it. You've decided what you're doing. You start to act. Now he's got to change his OODA loop. He's got to start a new OODA loop for attacking you because you've changed the scenario that existed when he started the plan. Right. So like, and I think something that people need to keep in mind is like an attacker's OODA loop, he knows it's going on before you do. So you have to you yes. have to basically start orienting. That's that's with all this this planning stuff we've been talking about. That's you're orienting yourself so that if you find yourself in a situation where you're in a, an attack situation, attack response situation, you're able to start that OODA loop as fast as possible. So you're not like starting from square one. You actually have a plan in place that you can okay, you observed, you got your plan, and then you're gonna decide and act and then speed that up as fast as you can. Absolutely. That in a nutshell, you're you're exactly right. In a nutshell, you're preparing yourself for something specifically like any type of training. You're literally giving yourself options for a bad situation. And that essentially increases your your probability of survival, which is our end objective, right? For us, preservation of human life, in particular, our clients and then ours is, is critical. And that's what we're after. And so the more we plan, the more we prepare, the more we put these systems in place, the more we thought through all of these things, the higher the probability of survival is. So so you you got it. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Well, so we've been talking like this mental stuff and that's what most of it is. Like you said at the beginning, like protection is primarily, it starts with your brain. The other stuff, the tactical skills, those are just tools. So let me, let's hit on you. And again, in the book, you, you sort of touch on them because I think you're trying to make the point, like what's really important is this, this mindset stuff, but let's hit on, what do you think for just a regular person? What are some useful, you know, skills, hard skills they, they can foster to be ready for a self-defense situation? Yeah, the the objective is not to get to the hard skills, but the, the reality is that sometimes plans fail. And and I've certainly been in a lot of environments where that's happened. As much as you've prepared, it just didn't work out the way you planned. And so you you got to back up to the hard skills. And ultimately for us in protection, the hard skill is what creates that distance between an attack and your principal and gives gives them a chance to to get away or escape. But for a normal person in a day-to-day kind of environment, you start to think about how you live and what you do. Most people live in a house or an apartment and most people, you know, they move from that point to a car and they get in the car and they drive and, and driving is extremely dangerous, way more dangerous than most things that we do. And then they they go and they meet with people at a workplace and maybe in modern times, people are stressed and disgruntled and maybe things didn't work out right. And now you are working around people that are maybe volatile and then you're going to places where things are happening or you're traveling on a vacation. So if I just look at it from that perspective... The first thing that I would say is learn a medical skill. You know, one of the the basic courses, and, and they'll call it a lot of different things, but it came from the origin of what's called TCCC or, or Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And this TCCC course is great. It's the, the guys that founded it, the guys that have contributed to it have, have done a great service for the military and law enforcement. But even for the civilian side, if you if you start to understand how to address medical issues, first in helping other people, but also in saving your own life. And, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier on, but if you have not a first aid kit, but like a trauma kit, right? Where you, you have things like tourniquets and you can apply the tourniquets to other people. You know how they work, how they function, where to put them, how long they'll last, all this good stuff. You can save someone's life. But Equally important is you can apply it to yourself and you can apply it under stress and you can apply it with one hand and you start to learn how to do that stuff. You start to learn how to use things like quick clot, right? A carterizing agent, right? A hemostatic agent that, that we can apply to something like uh, our arterial spray, like, okay, my, I 
hit an artery, I nicked an artery, and now I'm going to bleed out in less than a couple of minutes, I can utilize this particular tool to help me survive. And, and can I put it on? And where do I put it on? And how do I put it on? And then things like Israeli bandages or pressure dressings and things like chest seals for, for uh, gunshot wounds, for pneumothoraxes. So I start to learn the medical side. How do I move people, right? If it's me by myself and I'm with somebody that's, you know, I'm 185 and I'm with somebody that's say 300 pounds, that's going to be hard to move them. So what methods can I use to manipulate their body when they're injured or incapacitated? That's another thing to learn. You know, if I have these skills and then I have the hard items that like the trauma kit, where do I put the trauma kit? Well, I should probably have one in my car. I should probably have one at work, maybe at home. So wherever I spend the most time. So I would start with something like medical and then I would move into something like driving. And the reason I say driving is not because most people are going to need protective and evasive driving. You don't need to go spend 40 to 60 hours because somebody's chasing you. But the reality is you spend a ton of time behind the wheel of a car and that very, very heavy piece of metal that you have can kill someone else or you. So just learning how to manipulate that under stress, which happens in protective and evasive driving, you know, people are shooting at you or chasing you or you're driving in teams. That kind of training, I think, is really beneficial to an average everyday normal person. So those were the places that I would start. And then after that, I would kind of get into martial arts, right? And as I also mentioned earlier, I would focus on combat martial arts. It's not to say that Tai Chi and Aikido and all of this that are more esoteric don't have a place, but I'm talking about the martial component of martial arts, less art, more martial. And that would be jujitsu. That would be boxing. That would be Muay Thai. That would be wrestling. Those things actually do what they're going to do in a fight in training. And so those are massive, massive advantages to have if, if you're attacked physically or otherwise. And it also produces a different mindset too, because I know, let's say I'm going to train jujitsu, which I am. I'm rolling around with these guys and they're trying to choke me and break my limbs and throw me and smash me down into the ground or against the fence or in a wall. I, I have to fight back and I have to build this mental focus. Like I know the fight's not over. I'm continuing to fight until the end. And even in a controlled environment, the, the timer goes off and now I find another person and I start the process again. It's mentally conditioning me to deal with hardships and to not stop under stressful situations. So martial arts, but combat martial arts would be where I go next. And then I think after that for the civilian sector, then I would do firearms. And the reason I leave that for last, not because it's not valuable, not because it's not the most valuable, but because you know you can get into a lot of trouble with guns. You can shoot yourself. You can shoot someone accidentally that you love. You can, you, you can leave a weapon somewhere or lose a weapon. There are a lot of problems that come with it as well. Even things like weapon retention on your person, that, that's a whole separate skill that a lot of Americans don't even train. So that would be last. And there's a ton of, of schools that you can go to to learn about firearms. I mean, they're everywhere. But I would do that last just because I think that it takes more attention and the cost of a mistake in that realm, it's catastrophic. So it's important. It's very important. But I would, I would learn the things that occurred in a daily life more. So medical, driving, martial arts, and then into to shooting. Well, Todd, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? We have a, a few websites. Probably the, the best one, if you want to learn about the business side of it, would be tourprotection.com. And that talks about some of our entertainment clients. We can't list executives or dignitaries, but we can talk about entertainers because they talk about us. And then if you're interested in training, X 
phaselinex.com, phaselinex.com. And then for the younger group, um, which is below my demographic, if you're on Instagram, at tour training, T-O-U-R-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G, at tour training. So those are the best spots. And for the book specifically, you can buy it on our site at tourprotection.com, or you can go to Amazon or Apple or any purveyor of, of books that that are out there and it's in a paperback format, which I would recommend because you can make notes on it. You can, you can see things in a different way than you would digitally, but we also have the, the e-version available. Fantastic. Well, Todd Fox, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate your time. My guest today was Todd Fox. He's the author of the book, Protection For and From Humanity. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, toddafox.com. That's Todd with two Ds. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash protection, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the OM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.